Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Arcelia Gutierrez. Gutierrez is an assistant professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies at the University of California, Irvine. As an interdisciplinary scholar, she specializes in Latinx studies, media studies, media activism, and media industries. La doctora Gutierrez's research outlines the ways in which media activists have weaponized Latinidad as a discursive device for leverage in their fight for inclusion in the media industries. Bienvenida a este episodio, Arcelia. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up in California? Yes, um, I was born and raised in Long Beach, California, so that's part of Southern California. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up in a predominantly Spanish-speaking, working-class, Latinx ethnic enclave, mm -hmm. uh, mostly surrounded by Mexican and Central American immigrants. And uh, my neighborhood also included a large contingent of Filipino and Filipino-American. Mm -hmm. um, so very, uh, very diverse, you know, uh, neighborhood. And uh, thereafter, I lived in Michigan and Kentucky for a few years, right? I did grad school in Michigan and mm -hmm. my first job after the PhD in Kentucky. And now I'm thrilled to be back in sunny California and to be a part of uh, the University of California, Irvine, which is so close to where I grew up. So it's, it's such a privilege to be back here. Right. So you know the Midwest. You understand a little bit about this area. Definitely, yes. I was in Michigan for six years, so yes, I'm familiar. Yes. Are you, um, what's your heritage? Is it Mexican or are you Central American? Um, I'm, yeah, my parents are from uh, Mexico. Um, they're from Jalisco, right? Um, mm -hmm. Both of them born and raised in the area. My dad came here through the Bracero program. Right. Um, and then later I uh, met my mom here in the States, got married. Um, and so, yeah, just a uh, Born and raised in a very Mexican, Mexican-American uh, household. Great. Uh, Arcelia, talk to us about your journey into higher education. Are you the first one in your family to, um, you know, finish um, a graduate program or even go to the university? Yep. Um, so I'm a first-generation college student, um, and I like to credit my mom as being very pivotal in ensuring my academic success. Mm -hmm. You know, from a very young age, um, she stressed in our family the importance of education and making sure that we were de dedicated to our studies. And it came out of sacrifice, right? It, it meant that she stayed home to make sure that we were taken care of and did well in school. Mm -hmm. um, but financially, right, that came at a cost for a, a very working class family. Um, but thanks to her hard work, right, um, that's how I ended up in, in a magnet middle school, a magnet high school and was able to um, go to the University of California, San Diego to conduct my undergraduate studies. And funny enough, I originally started wanting to uh, major in economics um, and in business and decided to pursue a double major in Spanish to what I said at the time was to work on my uh, Spanish language skills. Um, but those classes were really just like instrumental in changing me um, and like my career and educational trajectories. So I met 
really inspiring professors in the Spanish department, the Chicano and Chicana and Latino and Latino Studies program, mm-hmm. the Ethnic Studies department yeah, at UC San Diego. Um, that just um, changed my life, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And um, what I found fascinating about their classes and their pedagogy was that it wasn't just about regurgitation, but rather, you know, about playing with ideas, engaging in critical dialogue in the classroom, thinking critically. Mm-hmm. And I was given a sense of intellectual freedom um, that I hadn't had before in other classes, right, especially in, like, large lecture courses. And so that is, in essence, what uh, pushed me to pursue my Ph.D. and how I ended up in grad school and wanting to become a, a professor. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um you know, the, the, certain classes, certain professors uh, certainly uh, have a, a a way of changing our our journey, right, and encouraging us to to go into things that we didn't think about <laughs> were possible. So, thank you for sharing that, um, Arcelia. Today, I want to talk to you specifically about your article titled "Pero Like and Me Too: Latina Content Creators, Social Media Entertainment, and the Politics of Latinx Millenniality." For those of you who might not be familiar, Pero Like and Me Too produce Latine-related content via short videos and articles, and it is primarily shared or viewed on social media. Some of the popular Latina creators featured on Me Too and Pero Like, who are now um, or within the last two years moved um, have moved to other platforms, including Netflix, Hentified, uh, Amazon Prime, with love and, and others are Jenny Lorenzo, Kat Lasso, Julissa Calderon, and Maya Murillo. Yeah, so thank you for that great question. Um, and this might be a long answer, but I think that it would be useful if I first describe um, how legacy media, and by that I mean like mainstream media, mm-hmm. um, has represented Latinidad and restricted the participation of Latinx within the industry. Right. So then be able to tell you, right, how me too and better like then fill in this gap. Um, and so we start thinking about uh, Spanish language media in the U.S. We know that it's historically relied on content from or geared towards uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. And that in the U.S. specifically, it's catered to a Spanish-speaking and immigrant-based audience. Um, it's also reified many Latin American and Latinx hierarchies as they pertain to, for example, race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. sexuality, class, colorism, and so forth. And we can take Telemundo and Univision, which are two, the two largest uh, television networks, Spanish-language television networks in, in the U.S. as an example, right? Mm-hmm. And we see the representations on screen there. Very white, uh, very light-skinned Latin Americans and Latinx that are represented, right, on camera. Mm -hmm. Rarely do you see any black Latinx uh, represented on screen. Historically, the representation has been uh, very heteronormative. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the programming, um, and particularly primetime programming, offered through these television networks um, has come mostly from Mexico, or it's programming that caters mostly to a Mexican-origin audience. Mm-hmm. Um, although we can't say, right, there have been changes in the last decade sparked mostly by the narco-telenovela, right, and Colombian mm-hmm. uh, telenovela productions. Um, but when you think of U.S.-born or U.S.-based Latinx like myself, right, um, or someone that might not speak Spanish and, and is considered uh, Latinx, they seldomly uh, see themselves represented in Spanish-language media That's right. and often make the jump, right, into consuming English-language media. Mm-hmm. But if we think of mainstream English-language media, 
It historically has offered very little programming for Latinx audiences. Um, if you look at the um, Hollywood Diversity Report, right, and the numbers, even to this day, the numbers um, for Latinx representation remain quite low. So there's a problem there, right, in terms of, like, uh, content and representation available for Latinx audiences. Um, we can think of cable as a potential other avenue mm -hmm. to fill this gap. Um, there were some attempts made in the late 1990s to the mid-2000s to um, tap into what is seen as like a bicultural, bilingual Latinx audience, mm -hmm. but those attempts were uh, quite unsuccessful. And I would say that, that that we can attribute that failure largely to the cost of accessing cable, right? You have to be able to pay mm -hmm. in order to access a cable channel and that its target demographic hadn't come of age yet. And here I'm talking about Latinx millennials as this like largely bicultural, bilingual niche audience that predominantly consumes uh, media and English. Mm -hmm. uh, so cable TV almost came too early for this generation. But if we jump to the late 2000s, right, when we start seeing the proliferation of smartphones, um, ubiquitous internet access, and social media usage during what is known as the digital era, um, things start to change. Um, audiences can now easily access content online, mm -hmm. per particularly through um, social media, and that's when we start seeing the explosion of social media entertainment, right? And Pero Like and Me Too are uh, platforms that fit within the genre of social media entertainment um, that offer content, right, over, over social media. And so not only is there access for audiences for this content, but what's important to keep in mind is also that content creators themselves, right, like Julissa Calderon mm -hmm. or Kat Lasso, uh, can themselves now have access to the means of production, um, to distribution, mm -hmm. and they can more easily tap into audiences without the traditional barriers to entry, as in legacy media. Right. So you don't have to necessarily go to film school anymore, right? You can literally just grab your phone, start recording, edit, upload your content to the web, and connect with audiences in this way. And that's what made uh, Pero Like and Me Too as um, what are known as these like, multi-channel networks mm -hmm. or multi-platform networks or MPMs, um, really savvy, right? At recognizing that there was this gap in the mediascape and that Latinx millennials were a niche, lucrative audience that was very hungry for content. So these MPNs started um, hiring a lot of content creators to facilitate the creation of, and distribution of content, um, and they allowed for the representation of Latinidad in very diverse and innovative ways um, that we hadn't seen before in legacy media. And so I can think of myself, right, as an example of a Latinx millennial as that target audience. Um, so I'm Mexican-American. I grew up consuming Spanish and English language uh, legacy media. But I really hadn't encountered a lot of the representations of Latinidad that I see right. on Pero Like and Me Too. So we can take Kat Lasso, who's like Peruvian, who is Peruvian-American, um, and she's breaking down very taboo subjects about mm -hmm. Latinidad through right. her content. Mm -hmm. Um, you had mentioned Julissa, right? Um, mm -hmm. She's exposing us to Dominican and Caribbean culture um, and the experiences of Afro-Latinx. Right. Uh, Jenny Lorenzo is showing us what it's like to be Cuban, Cuban-American, and bilingual. And Maya Murillo is depicting what it's like to be a third-generation, you know, pocha. She reclaims the term of pocha, <laughs> right? Um, and the struggles of figuring out um, how to find belonging when you're not seen as or considered as Latina enough. Mm -hmm. And these are some of the ways that Me Too, Pero Like, and these four content creators um, really help fill that gap of Latinx representation. 
Right. And uh, so one of the things I think one of one of the things that I find uh, very important to 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 continue to to think about and 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 discuss right with our students and maybe push back in some of this media that we consume is that um, while I I do I love seeing all of this content that's being created in in, in like Hulu and Netflix and I- even um, a recent series now on um Amazon Prime um, that has uh, strong Latino representation. The series, right, that are that are that are um, existing now that that come up, um, but they're in those kind of streaming, you know, services, not necessarily prime time. Um, and um, and while we can praise that, there's still that you know, where are the Latinos in mainstream media, right? Um, so that's something mm-hmm. to continue to work towards, right, and push. Um, and I know we have several directors that are, you know, like America Ferrera, um, that are trying to push that envelope. But um, but it's certainly still missing, right? Latino representation and mainstream media um, is still missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um so in this, uh, you know, platforms like Pero Like and Me Too, um, what have they gotten right and what have they gotten wrong, in your opinion? Yeah. <laughs> so I think what they, <laughs> right, such a big question. Right. Um, so I think what they have gotten right, um, and it's part of the argument that I make in the article, is that um, these four content creators um do a really great job at contesting, mediating, articulating, and representing panethic Latinidad. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean, right, this like broad umbrella term of what it means to be Latino, Latino, Latinx. Mm-hmm. So they represent panethic Latinidad in a, a very productive and innovative way, um, which is rarely seen in legacy media. And they do so um, in two ways. So one, by offering uh, representations of Latinx groups often excluded, for mainstream representations, right? So we can think of, for example, representation of Dominican Americans and mm-hmm. Black Latinx um, is not often seen in, in, in legacy media or in um, Spanish language media. And two, um, by negotiating the relationship between Latinidad and, for example, race, racism, ethnicity, sexuality, gender, language, uh, generational cohorts, and beauty standards, um, to name a few. So we've seen, um, often seen, very flattened representations of Latinidad on mainstream media, but what I really enjoy and what I think these videos get right, right, is that they offer very nuanced, complex, and ethnically specific content. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can talk um, about Jenny Lorenzo's like abuela character, right? This very Cuban uh, abuela who's like dealing with her grandchildren often. Um, but that still manages to resonate with the wider Latinx pan-ethnic collective, right? Or even sometimes with non-Latinx audiences. And to find that, strike that balance, I think it's so difficult, right? But also so brilliant to be able to do it. Um, and what I also find compelling is how some of these creators also take on and, and challenge, right, the hierarchies within Latinidad. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we see, right, um, they start contesting, for example, Latinx white privilege. Um, and you see that in Cat Lasso's The Cat Call series, right? She's right. like, can Latinos be right? white? Can they have white privilege? Um, other videos also challenge anti-black and anti-indigenous racism, colorism, beauty standards, homophobia, sexism, and the gender uh, binary. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that this is very emblematic of Latinx millennials as a generational cohort, which is why I describe this contestation and negotiation of Latinidad as the politics of Latinx millenniality. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that you can make right, that similar like argument or apply a similar generational lens um, to explore the relationship between Generation Z, right, which is the one that comes after the millennials, mm-hmm. and TikTok. Um, <laughs> and just a lot of the amazing work that, this, uh, that Gen Z has been doing on, on the platform, which I just find quite genius. Um, but going back to, to the article and, and these creators um, and what they get right, um, I think that by offering diverse representations of what it means to be Latinx and by challenging the marginalizations within Latinidad, uh, these four creators are also encouraging audiences uh, to envision a more expansive and a less oppressive Latinidad. So we've, you, I'm sure you've heard, Elena, like the expression, not all Latinx are Mexican, right? Right. Like, <laughs> the stereotype, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Me Too and Federal Like are doing that heavy lifting, right? They're, they're showing us the diversity in the mm-hmm. myriad of ethnicities mm-hmm. within um, the wider Latinx uh, pan-ethnic collective. And I think that they're also offering a space to talk about very challenging and often taboo subjects that are sometimes not discussed in certain Latinx communities or within our families. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the video on Pero Like, which is titled What Afro-Latinos Want You to Know. Have you had a chance to watch remember. that one? I probably have watched it, but I don't remember everything that happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Julissa makes an appearance in this turn, right, and, and Gabriel Orbe, And I just find that one so powerful at addressing and helping educate audiences about Latinx anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing so right at a time, like, it's, it's not... 2019, 2020, when this video came out, it, it came out before at a time when it wasn't necessarily popular to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something very powerful, right, about about the work that, that some of these content creators um, are doing. Um, as to what they've gotten wrong, um, so the representations of Latinx identity that we see on Pero Light and Me Too haven't always been perceived as like successful by audiences. Mm. Um, so these platforms have been criticized by some Latinx audiences uh, for creating monolithic, reductive, or stereotypical depictions of Latinidad. Uh, others have accused them of creating tired caricatures, mm. treading the line of cultural exploitation, and reducing Latinx identity to tropes such as hachitos, tacos, pupusas, mm-hmm. conchas, Cacti and Selena Quintanilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the problem that comes with consumer and influencer culture, which is treading that line between representation and exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's a healthy debate um, to have, right? And that helps keep, the, helps, uh, keep these uh, creators and these platforms accountable to the communities that they represent. Right. One of the things that I that I find really powerful about this videos and this type of media for millennials and Generation Zs um, is that because um, I don't see this, you know, uh, being viewed by our abuelitas and and suddenly becoming woke, right? <laughs> the abuelitas, yeah. right? But it does empower um, you know younger generations to feel. Um, you know, like being Afro Latinx is it's uh, beautiful. It's you know, it's part of who we are, and we need to acknowledge that sort of heritage, right? Um, yeah. 
or, you know, um, whatever the case might be, right? Um, that is still taboo in our in our communities. And um, if nothing else, right, is like at the beginning of a conversation at a, you know, Christmas dinner, you know, and and to, to sort of stop or, you know, if a conversation is going in a way that might not be inclusive or it might be, you know, discriminatory against a particular group, uh, that those conversations might be able to, you know, might happen and, um, you know, and, and, and they can be shared with family, right? And sort of talk about, you know, talk about those things that are, that you have family members, right? That are, you know, that are from different races that are bilingual or not, and they still, you know, hold to their Latinx roots, et cetera. Yeah. In different ways. Yeah, definitely. Right. And so I do like uh, what it, you know, what that content does with, with uh, younger generations. And even as, um, yeah, I mean, when you mentioned Telemundo and Univision, which are uh, definitely primarily, um, you see people that are, um, you know, primarily white um, personalities that are in this um, spaces. Um, and when you do see people from other races, are they occupied more marginalized or stereotypical roles, right? And in, in telenovelas yeah. or or so, you know. Um, and so, so there is a, also an opportunity to push back right? because this this type of this television, right? This Telemundo and Univision, they are produced here in the U.S. Uh, and um, and it seems to me that certain standards or certain um, you know a call to inclusivity within those channels or television networks it's not happening at the, in the same way that maybe some of the other mainstream chan- English language uh, channels. So not at all. Yeah, and I think there's been some pushback historically um, towards Univision and Telemundo. Um, but the pushback has been for hiring more U.S. born Latinx mm-hmm. because yeah. there's an exclusion that happens right there, right? right. The Spanish language uh, media industry in the U.S. is dominated by Latin American mm-hmm. um, executives, right? Mm-hmm. And often other employees. Um, but people that are born in the U.S. that might be perceived as not having, like, uh, you know, proper Spanish or right. accurate grammar, right, are not... Uh, often brought onto this industry because of those, right, hierarchies within Latinidad. Um, And so that's been the pushback. But as you say, right, there hasn't been as much critique in terms of indigenous or Mm -hmm. black um, Mm -hmm. Latinx uh, representation, right, or Latin American representation in in this industry. And I think, yeah, that's an excellent point that we need to continue to push against, right, for for Mm -hmm. more inclusion in this industry. Absolutely. Um, Arcelia, is there anything else you're currently working on or any future research uh, that you would like to share with us? Yes, so I'm speaking of activism. <laughs> that was a nice segue. <laughs> I'm also currently working on my book manuscript. Um, and, and in the book, I explore Latinx media activism and mm-hmm. advocacy from the 1980s to 2020. Mm-hmm. And in it, um, I trace how Latinx media activists have navigated processes of deregulation and neoliberalization and the strategies that they've used to push for the inclusion of Latinx in television, film, and radio. 
Um, and just to give you a quick uh, chapter breakdown, um, in the first chapter, I look at protests against stereotypes in film. During the 1980s, um, looking at Cuban and Puerto Rican communities and, and their activism. Uh, chapter two then uh, looks at the uses of equal, equal employment opportunity rules um, in the late 1980s to push for more hiring. So it's employment practices, right, of what were known as Hispanics at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so to push for the hiring of Hispanics at local broadcasting television stations. Uh, the next chapter then analyzes the boycott campaign against uh, shock jock uh, Howard Stern. If you mm -hmm. remember some of the comments that he made about Selena Quintanilla and Latinos mm -hmm. when she passed away, mm -hmm. some quite racist remarks. Right. Um, and yeah, the next chapter then traces Latino media activism surrounding uh, public broadcasting. Um, and the last chapter which concludes by taking on the case of media reparations for Latinx communities. So stay tuned for that. It's probably still a few years away, still working on it. But um, I'm excited to hopefully see it out in the world in, in a few years. And I'd love to have you back for another episode And uh, based on that work. It sounds it sounds amazing. Yes, and something that's needed. We need to, you know, talk more about that and, and shed some light into, into these topics. Um, Arcelia, uh, Doctora Gutierrez, gracias uh, por esta conversación. Muchísimas gracias por la invitación. Fue un placer. Um, and uh, thank you so much again for having me here. I really appreciate it. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.